Well, folks, it's come to this. Stephen Harper has done it again. Just when you think he couldn't contradict himself any harder, he comes back like he's Joe Clark in the 90s. Yes, the Prime Minister is once again acting like a confused husband who wants a divorce today and a family vacation tomorrow. Now this Harper, he may look dumb, but he knows what he's doing. Oh yes, I saw him at the convention, and behind that dull exterior, the machinery gears are turning. And he's obviously no slouch. When it comes to confusion, he's clearly learned from the best. Of course, I'm talking about his rival, Paul Martin. The Liberal leader can't stop dithering. He's learned to dither with the best of them. He dithers more than Quebec has since 1984 about whether it wants to stay in the country, or kind of go off and do its own thing. Heck, he can even spin it to his advantage. The more he flubs and flusters about the sponsorship scandal, the more taxpayers may be confused about what it even was. Now, Canada is a large country. It spans the East Coast all the way over to that other one. And we've got more Tim Hortons than Belinda Stronix got party membership cards. But as I see it, you can see this country two ways, as one nation, or as ten provinces, and three territories. But make no mistake, if you're the Prime Minister, the first thing out of your head when you wake up at your little house at 24 Sussex Drive should be, how do I bring everyone together? Because no matter how many provinces, we're always one country. everyone, welcome back to Mike Lanas. I'm Luke Savage, and with me as always... Uh, Will Sloan. It feels a little strange kind of role reversal, me beginning the episode, but uh, since you were just uh, parting ways with our guest there, I thought <laughs> I, I, should, uh, I should start things off. And possibly our biggest get yet, that was <laughs> Canadian superstar Rick Mercer, the conscience of a nation. So this week we want to talk about something that I think is a real diamond in the rough when it comes to kind of the cultural paraphernalia of the early 2000s, which is, of course, you know where our roots really lie. And uh, I don't know, in the interests of uh, pan-North American unity, I think this is really perfect. It's got everything. It's got Canada, but it's also got Al Gore and George W. Bush. It's got the 2000 American presidential election. It's got Canadian luminaries like Paul Martin and Stephen Harper. I'm speaking, of course, of Rick Mercer's Talking to Americans. What is Talking to Americans well for... (laughs) All of the mostly Americans listening who have no idea what we're talking about. Talking to Americans is a uniquely Canadian cultural phenomenon. And I can think of no piece of culture that better demonstrates our country's simultaneous superiority complex and inferiority complex. And you have to understand this special, when it aired on the CBC in, I think, early 2001, was a genuine cultural phenomenon in Canada. Everyone watched it. Everyone was talking about it the day after. It, it basically greenlit the rest of Rick Mercer's career. Rick Mercer, for those who don't know, is kind of, let's be generous and say Canada's John Stewart. Yeah, I, th- I, actually, I think that's perfectly, I think it's perfectly fair. Rick Mercer, like Stewart, is somebody who got his start as a comedian on a show called This Hour is 22 Minutes. And Talking to Americans was initially, I believe, a kind of segment on that, which they put into... Uh, the special that we watched, uh, but he later had his own show, The Rick Mercer Report, and he, I would say, was probably one of Canada's foremost pundits. Yeah, um, and uh, somebody who 
was quite influential kind of culturally and politically. Like imagine The Daily Show, but imagine that it aired on your nation's public broadcaster. Well, Americans don't know what that is because they don't have one. Imagine you had a public broadcaster (laughs) and imagine that... It was kind of broadly liberal-ish, but not particularly ideologically affiliated. It's small-l liberal in the sense that, you know, Anglo-Canadian culture is kind of small-l liberal. Talking to Americans was a special in which Rick Mercer simply went to the United States to various cities and colleges and sites of interest and talked to Americans about Canada. And not unlike Jay Leno's jaywalking segment, it was designed to showcase uh, the ignorance of the people that he was talking to, in this case about their neighbors to the north. The trouble is that the whole bit, it's just the same bit over and over again, and the bit is made up things about Canada that I guess are kind of riffing on the idea that Americans think Canada is extremely provincial, but which aren't real. So uh, you get Americans, you, you catch them unguarded saying really embarrassing things like uh congratulations canada on creating a volunteer fire station Mm -hmm. congratulations canada on legalizing vcrs congratulations canada on your national igloo congratulations canada on 800 miles of paved no 800 feet of paved road (laughs) right right (laughs) congratulations on opening your first university congratulations on opening your first mcdonald's yeah read it to yourself and then if if you want to yeah to the right honorable paul martin jr prime minister in waiting given that 2001 has been declared the year of the senior citizen we demand that the government of canada discourage the Canadian tradition of placing senior citizens on northern ice flows and leaving them to perish. Yeah, I'll sign that. So what are you studying again? History. Right, very good. Uh, I definitely believe that uh, senior citizens shouldn't be placed on ice flows. And you're a prof here? Yeah. How many years? Nine. You like it? Yeah, it's good. Good school? Yeah. Would you be interested in visiting the uh, Canada's National Igloo? Absolutely. Yeah? Sure. Congratulations, Canada, on preserving your igloo. Congratulations, Canada, on preserving your national igloo. Yes, indeed. Well, congratulations, Canada, on becoming part of North America. Thank you very much. And it doesn't exactly build. It's like an episode of Just for Laughs gags. Yeah. Uh, to use another local reference. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can't unpack all of these folks. Just come to Canada. So he goes to New York. He goes to Washington. Uh, he goes Princeton, to... Princeton, uh, Berkeley, Stanford. Uh, at Columbia University, my alma mater, he... Uh, goes to several students and gets them to sign a petition about... Uh, what is it? The polar bear hunt in Toronto? Yeah, something like Which, that. Which, that's not a real thing. He just made he just made that up so, for, for this. you know, uh, watching it this time, the problem is most of the people basically intuit that it's a bit. Yeah. And they're more than anything, they're just amused to be talking to a guy with a microphone and a camera. So when he says something like... Um, yeah, uh, Canada's just legalized McDonald's, and they laugh and they say, "What, really?" <laughs> like they they're surprised, and it's then not like they take it as a given. Yeah, he'll he'll kind of conclude the bit by saying, "Like, do you think that's you know, do you think it's a good idea? Canada just got its first daily newspaper. Do you think that's a good idea?" And then they're just like, uh-huh, "Yeah, I guess so." Uh-huh. Yeah, like. They're, they're mostly in on the joke yeah. in, in some fashion or another. So the the one thing that might make this, I guess, kind of pointed, um, like, frankly, it isn't mean enough. <laughs> like, yeah. like, if it was really trying to expose American ignorance about Canada, it might actually kind of lean into that a little harder. But it's, it's actually um, in a way that is unfortunately distinctly Canadian. It's a little too 
too meek in its satire to really land anywhere. Mm-hmm. The, the one moment that's kind of effective, which inexplicably is not the kind of final crescendo, it's kind of the second last, it's the penultimate scene, is when he confronts George Bush on the campaign trail. Um, and this was right after... You know, it had been a kind of minor news cycle about George Bush not knowing who the leader of Pakistan was and then saying, well, when it comes to world leaders, you can't stump me now. And so Mercer goes up to him and says, uh, Canadian Prime Minister Jean, is it Jean Poutine? Jean Poutine. So Jean, that was not the name of our prime minister in the early 2000s. It was actually Jean Chrétien. But uh, Bush just kind of somberly answers the question with, uh, you know, some really hack politician sound bites like, oh, well, like me, he likes free trade and I'm looking forward to whatever. And apparently you said this was the reason Bush actually wouldn't do interviews with the CBC later on. That's I'm pretty sure that's correct. And also when George Bush made his first visit to Canada as president, he jokingly referred to this by saying, I'd like to send warmest wishes to my favorite world leader, Jean Poutine, or something like Mm -hmm. that. I think it is important to acknowledge that the kind of current of faintly anti-American sentiment, for want of a better way of of putting it, that was prevalent in, in the early 2000s, it was a very real thing. And this is kind of you know, maybe leaning into it uh, very softly. Now, this came out before 9-11, correct? Uh, That is correct. But after 9-11 especially, and even before that, after Bush had won the election, um, and especially, you know, when I was kind of in grade nine, when you and I were both wide-eyed teenagers going to see our first Michael Moore films by the giant tiger near the mall, Mm -hmm. you know, that was kind of a flare-up of what, at the time, especially for the right in Canada, was identified as anti-American sentiment. And I mean, it was in the sense of, you know, Canadians, pretty overwhelmingly, I think this is still the case, favor Democrats in American elections. Mm -hmm. Like, I would say probably by like a margin of seven or eight out of ten. And so Canadians were not fans of the Iraq War. They were not fans of how the Bush administration responded to 9-11. But those reactions were also kind of partly based on what is kind of a, I guess, an ingrained feature of the Canadian identity, which has a very complicated cultural etymology going back, well, not just decades, but ultimately centuries, which has to do with the fact that Canada is much smaller than the United States, culturally, economically, militarily, but that it's built an entire identity first as kind of a British colony uh, that was preserving the values of of kind of small c conservative Toryism over and against the uh, licentious republicanism and small d democracy of the United States first is that and then weirdly enough beginning in kind of the 1960s Canada kind of comes into its own as the conscientious middle power that favors multilateralism you know, multiculturalism, you know, tolerance, maybe more of a penchant for activist government that proudly has universal health care, something the United States still doesn't have. So there's a really complicated relationship here. And for that reason, various negative feelings about the United States, which are textured in all kinds of different ways, kind of cut across the Canadian political and cultural spectrum. So that's the actual cultural milieu that something like this is leaning into. And I think perhaps that's one of the things that makes it kind of ineffective because it's kind of actually all things to all people. It's tapping into a sort of latent cultural sentiment, um, but one without any particular agenda. It's just that in Canada, you know, when you go to public school, you're taught this isn't the United States. And then the talking points are things like, um, we're a cultural mosaic, they're a melting pot. And these are the things that you learn. I mean, it's not effective to us, but also the success of Rick Mercer and the phenomenal success of talking to Americans 
clearly this is the kind of vision of of not not just Canadian comedy but of Canadiana that resonates with much of this country. I think a reason why we're not, you know, avid viewers of the Rick Mercer report is that it was kind of uh his show was very milk toast and as a pundit he sort of positioned himself as like the quintessential Canadian in a way that didn't have a lot of edges. Well, speak for yourself, because back in kind of circa 2003, 2004, you know, a family ritual was uh, crowding around the boob tube in, uh, in the evening to watch uh, the Rick Mercer report. I think it was on mm-hmm. CBC Sunday. Yeah. No, it was, it was on uh, it was on Mondays because it Monday used to night. be called Monday Report. Oh, remember? that's right. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, I used to watch it, too, mm-hmm. kind of when I was in grade nine, grade 10, mm-hmm. you know, coming into my own as a political politically conscious thinker well we you know uh, we watched all those shows in our house we watched uh, 22 minutes we watched air farce and and we watched uh, and watched this and i remember when this came on the air the mercer report uh, talking to americans was actually part of uh, this hour's 22 minutes thinking of it as kind of actually a little more serious yeah <laughs> um and i guess it was because rick mercer he started as a comedian and then he did really did lean into kind of being a pundit more and so we watched a lot of it we've revisited a lot of his punditry which i confess i have not partaken in for really quite some time i mean well over 10 years well maybe i'll describe a bit what the kind of structure of a typical episode of the rick mercer report was and remember did you ever go to a taping uh, no, I knew people who did. And, you know, I mean, it is funny. I, I would relatively often hear people say things like, you know, I watch Rick Mercer and, like, he makes me proud to be Canadian. Really? Uh, yeah, I, I would hear people say this, which, like, I, I mean, I, I get it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But a typical episode would he'd have some, some monologue jokes mm-hmm. just about the, the goings-on of the day, you know, kind of a... You know, pretty pretty tepid stuff. He'd have uh, things like pictures of something that was going on in the House of Commons, and then he'd kind of riff on it for a bit. So it'd be like a picture of uh, Lucien Bouchard looking confused, and it would be, Lucien Bouchard is looking to find out where his voters went, or something like that. <laughs> like, actually, yeah, he'd do like a mystery science theater style <laughs> commentary on these pictures. Right. Uh, and then there would be a segment where he would go to some place in Canada Typically somewhere like rural, rural small or town in, a, in one of the one of the so, northern territories. And not not and always. Sometimes it was like sometimes it was a metropole too. But I guess that is what it, a typical one would be like. Like let's go to the soapbox derby in uh, Kelowna. Or Kelowna. Something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Another thing he would do would be like a novelty celebrity or politician thing. So he had jan arden on and they went on the cn tower edge walk or mm. you know i don't know the guy from sloan and they're walking down <laughs> right. you know i don't know queen street or something he definitely saw himself as a, a cultural ambassador for canada and he took it as his mission to expose his viewers to more parts of this this great land that they might not otherwise have seen and to encourage more curiosity about the country more travel and he definitely saw himself as a mediator between Canada's political and media classes and its citizenry. So one of his talents, if if that's the word I'm looking for, was humanizing politicians. Mm-hmm. He would go on sort of dates with politicians just like he would with celebrities, like they'd go zip lining or something. Yeah, I mean, a, a very famous instance was when he was out kayaking with Bob Ray, who at the time was the leader of the uh, federal Liberal Party. Yeah, interim leader, actually. Interim, but he used to be the 
Uh, NDP Premier of Ontario. Right. That visit climax with the two of them going skinny dipping mm-hmm. together. Mm-hmm. Or a famous segment that Luke and I revisited tonight was him having a slumber party at Prime Minister Stephen Harper's residence. And Stephen Harper, if you know anything about him, not the most outwardly human of politicians. Uh, <laughs> a guy who makes like Al Gore or Cory Booker look charismatic. So, you know, he tries to do some some mechanical riffing with Stephen Harper and uh, it, it kind of climaxes with him playing uh, ball hockey in his pajamas with Stephen Harper's kids in the hallway. And then the bit is Harper is holding like a briefcase because he's hard at work upstairs. And he says, keep it down, down keep there. it down, down there. <laughs> like it has mechanical. And then uh-huh. Rick goes, you're not the boss of me, you know. Hey, you kids keep it down there. You're not the boss of me. There's actually an earlier segment of the Mercer Report, which we didn't watch tonight. I'm not sure how much removed it was in time from uh, the Harper sleepover sketch, uh, but where Harper kind of um, gave Mercer the cold shoulder on the conservative plane. It might have been in the 2006 federal election. I remember watching that when it aired. That's right, me too. And and he just, Mercer like held up the mic and Harper went something like, you know, you're not fooling me, Mercer or something. Mm -hmm. And that kind of thing, I guess, conservative apparatchiks rightly concluded that wasn't a good look. And so briefly in the mid-2000s, they had Harper kind of leaning. They had him lean into just trying to be a little more human. And in the act of trying to be human and failing, Harper's kind of humanized by this bit. Because he is so acutely uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And I think this really comes to a head in the, I guess, kind of infamous segment at the end where he's saying goodbye to his kids before they go to school and he shakes their hand, uh, which was kind of endlessly mocked. And, uh, you know, I profoundly loathe Stephen Harper, but I believe that under normal circumstances, he probably hugged his kids before they went to school. Sure. But so just to end that digression, you know, the act of trying to humanize Harper and him being very bad at it kind of actually does humanize him. And then later they just decided, well, never mind, he's actually really cruel and he keeps winning anyway, so we might as well have him lean into that. It is funny that Harper gave Mercer the cold shoulder that first time because shows like The Mercer Report the Royal Canadian Air Force, these shows exist so that politicians can go on them and have a laugh with the person who is impersonating them on the show. It's mm-hmm. it's kind of like SNL. That's right, know, yeah. But, but even more toothless if possible. Well, yeah, because, I mean, I guess the odd one, just like with the odd SNL thing, it's funny, but mostly mm-hmm. they don't they don't really work. So, yeah, most of the Mercer Report is kind of, kind of nonpartisan, except for the centerpiece of the show, which is Rick's rant. Which is, in many ways, the most iconic. Uh, I mean, it's the thing that people most associate, I think, with Rick Mercer. It started on This Hour as 22 Minutes, and it carried over into this show when it really became kind of a Canadian institution. His rants have been published in book form as well, but they lose, I think, some of their impact when you don't see him walking through Graffiti Alley in Toronto. Which I'm not actually sure where that is. I know, maybe, we, we maybe should know that. some of our Canadian listeners could fill us in on that very Canadian bit of trivia, I'm not sure. And he paces around and he talks about whatever the issue of the day is in this very kind of forceful, fast-talking way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I would say the, the takes are kind of liberal-ish. Small p, progressive occasionally, but they, they are often just sort of pundit takes that are about like current affairs and kind of horse race stuff and, and that's not always the case to be fair we watched one where he was talking about the minimum wage in which he was taking a you know very decent pro minimum wage position mm. but for the most part i think precisely because as you as you put it you know he sees himself as sort of this cultural ambassador 
Uh, he has to kind of both sides everything. He has to be very, in some ways, non-committal. Like he, he, insofar as he is committal, it's to these kind of abstract and non-controversial ideas, like the idea of not telling lies or things uh-huh. like that. But sometimes that siphons off some of the the impact that that these rants might otherwise have. For example, we watched one where he was talking about uh, how the conservatives were lying about. Uh, they, they were refusing to tell Canadians the cost of some fighter jets they wanted to buy. Mm-hmm. And he basically sidesteps the question of whether buying the fighter jets is a good thing or not. The problem is just that they're not being transparent to, to Johnny Taxpayer about you know right. about how much they cost. Right. His general take is kind of, boy, the politicians, can you believe these these barrel of boobs? Yeah, what a what a concept. Um or you know, there's the other one that we were quite looking forward to revisiting and it disappointed me a bit. His infamous what I thought was a defense of the Alberta pipeline. Yeah, the uh I guess the uh Energy East pipeline. Right. Which, you know, I thought in my memory I thought it was just he was he was entirely for it. But no, actually, what it was was uh, the mayor of Montreal was objecting to it because there weren't there was no money in it spe- specifically for Montreal, according to right. Mercer. Denis Coderre didn't want the pipeline, and and so I remembered it the same way as you. I remembered it as actually being a sort of overtly reactionary pro pipeline rant. But it's more just about how you know this needs to be. We're one country, and you know, guess what? This has nothing to do with Montreal, and we just need to, you know. But he's he kind of alludes to how some people object to, the, to building more pipelines, but he doesn't actually engage with the question at all. Like well, the, he says, like you know, some people don't like that Canada's in the oil business. Mm-hmm. Some people think uh, we shouldn't be even be looking at oil. But you know, forget that for the time being, because yeah, yeah. that's not that's a debate for another time. Right, right. So the whole thing is just this kind of very, very vague meta critique that doesn't yeah. really land. And it's cool because he's doing it in a graffiti alley, <laughs> and that's how you know because he's got the graffiti behind him. He's getting and he's in the streets. He's down to the dirty business of, of, but, but, of opinion spinning, but bohemian wisdom from the front lines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like he's like the mayor of Queen Street, you know. <laughs> Let's be clear. A lot of people do not like Alberta oil. They hate the fact that Canada is in the oil business at all. They hate the fact that the world is addicted to oil and Canada is sitting on a whole bunch of it. But Denny avoided that debate. Instead, he made it clear. He wants to stop this pipeline because there's not enough in it for Montreal. There's not enough money in it for Quebec. Now, at the risk of sounding like someone who cares deeply about a national federation, Denny, try to wrap your head around this. This has nothing to do with Montreal. This has nothing to do with Quebec. This is about one part of Canada trying to get their natural resources to the world market. Now, when Alberta sells their oil to the world, they make money. It's ugly, but it's true. But then they take a bunch of that money and they put it in the transfer payment pot. And then that money is given no strings attached to provinces not making as much money. I wonder if, like John Stewart, Rick Mercer was at his most effective in kind of the era that... You know the talking to Americans there maybe maybe shortly after that maybe kind of in his early pundit era because when I think of this type of comedy punditry uh, I associated with kind of the you know Bush era you know the early the early 2000s Bush's first term and how kind of Canada experienced it and maybe that's because that was the period when I actually really liked it and I watched uh-huh. it but I wonder if there isn't something 
of an analogy to how, you know, Stuart became less effective when he was removed from that era. Uh-huh. Well, Stuart, I think, was at his most effective when he was uh, kind of a, a dissident force. Mm. Um, but I've never really, even when the conservatives were in power, I've never really thought of Rick Mercer as a dissident. He's an ambassador. The pundit class in general, particularly people of Mercer's vintage, are, are more rattled now than they used to be. And the people who watch shows like this kind of have more of an expectation given the rise of the alt-right uh, and, you know, even kind of resurgent socialism. <laughs> they they have an expectation that talk show hosts and TV comedians are going to hold the powerful to account. Uh, you know, I sometimes think how strange it would be if Jay Leno was still on TV and he was expected to be l- like a resistance guy. Uh-huh. Like, what what would Jay Leno be like in the Trump era? Would he still be doing jokes about his hair? A kind of milk toast guy like Rick Mercer, he he doesn't seem uniquely equipped for an era where sort of mainstream baseline ideas of what an American or a Canadian is are being called into question. And I do think a, a, a genuine criticism of the show is that, you know, it is entirely a kind of positive, unifying vision of Canada in such a way that really precludes it from engaging in any real criticism. So, I mean, let's put it this way. Rick is not going to reserves where there's, you know, no clean drinking water, where there are boil water advisories and things like that. We were searching on his YouTube channel. Is there anything about indigenous issues? Mm-hmm. Is there anything about you know, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. We, we couldn't find anything. And I mean, the moral outrage in Rick Mercer's rants is real, but it's directed at very kind of typical and, and I think uncontroversial targets, maybe worthy ones like, you know, online bullying and things like that, but mm-hmm. but less so at, at kind of maybe these more um, contentious cultural issues. Mm-hmm. Hey, I'm, uh, I'm not a lumberjack fur trader and i don't live in an igloo or eat blubber or own a dog sled and i don't know jimmy sally or Susie from canada although i'm certain they're really really nice i have a prime minister not a president i speak english and french not american and i pronounce it about not a boot i can proudly sew my country's flag on my backpack i believe in peacekeeping not policing diversity, not assimilation, and that the beaver is a truly proud and noble animal. The tooth is a hat, the Chesterfield is a coach, and it is pronounced Zed, not Zed. Canada is the second largest land mass, the first nation of hockey, and the best part of North America. My name is Joe, and I am Canadian. Thank you. So reimmersing ourselves in the culture of the early 2000s uh, gave us an opportunity to revisit one of the other, and this is so embarrassing to say, one of the other kind of most iconic Canadian cultural artifacts, which was this I am Canadian beer commercial that you just heard, you know, which is this kind of, I mean, how would you contextualize that it's so it's so it's so bizarre even uh, especially now yeah i mean again you needed to be there but i think it's some of the same cultural pathologies that brought us talking to americans this superiority complex and inferiority complex and this constantly being defined by how we think we're being perceived by the united states and also trying to kind of reckon with what is the the canadian identity you know the guy in this commercial is being proffered as a 
a quintessential Canadian and mm. he's rebutting all of the stereotypes that are well, associated well, with Well, also leaning into them because there's yeah. a part where he's like, he's like, I don't know when, whatever the names are, Bobby and Janine from Canada, but he goes, but I'm, I'm sure they're real nice, you yeah. know? Like, so it is kind of perfectly non-committal in a Canadian way. It's like, we reject the stereotypes, but also we embrace them. You know, I sometimes think that uh, we were part of the last generation that really grew up with all of the old world stuff before, you know, just, just the world totally changed. Back in the 90s, we still, by, you know, cultural osmosis, got the same old Canadian identity. Yeah. Um, the idea of this guy, this kind of white guy in a flannel shirt proposed as the quintessential Canadian would have been very uncontroversial at that time. Yeah, you couldn't you couldn't put this out on TV now. I think another reason why we wanted to revisit this commercial is it I think it speaks to something that annoys us about Canada, which is its kind of aesthetic mediocrity. <laughs> it's mediocrity of its culture. Um, just in its iconography or, you know, the, the other night we were talking about the Bare Naked Ladies, who are really the quintessential Canadian band because they're kind of a jokey band. They're kind of an ironic band. And it's like, well, Canada is obviously a lame country and it's uncool. And but we're going to lean into that. Yeah. And yeah. so so the idea of Canada having a pop band well, obviously that's ridiculous. Canada, what we have, we have igloos, we uh-huh. we eat back bacon. It's ridiculous. So so here are some dorky guys who sing song. You know, if I had a million right, it's, dollars. it's like they're they're supposed to be sort of an anti pop group. The fact that when I was growing up, the bare naked ladies were sort of positioned to us as this is your band. This is, this yeah, is this Canada's, Canada's band. band. <laughs> and you know, it, it's similar, frankly, to another Canadian novelty band, the disgraced Moxie Fruvis who I think are utterly abysmal. Um, I mean, just thinking about them just just, just bothers me so much. Mm-hmm. That, the, fi- the figure of Gian Gameshi aside, who's in, in and of himself an absolutely repellent figure, but just the music is terrible. They would have these jokey songs. There was that one, uh, My Baby Loves a Bunch of Authors. Do you remember that? Oh, Where yeah. it's just like the, the premise of the song was that the, the singer has a girlfriend who wants to stay home reading. Yeah, the, the the chorus is like, I like to go out dancing. My baby loves a bunch of authors. I want to go out and do something or other, but she's too busy reading Pierre brand, Burton. brand new novels. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it, 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 like name check yeah, a bunch she's, of... She's just, flirting with Pierre Burton. That's right. One of the lines. Name checking yeah. a bunch of authors. Yeah. And the part of that song that I particularly hate is the <laughs> opening when when it, it goes wabba-dabba-dabba-bum wabba-dabba-dabba-bum there's something in that wabba-dabba-dabba well, that is the quintessential <laughs> like jokey bad don't take us seriously Canadian but the, sound the, the trouble is it's not just jokey and bad because as with the bare naked ladies it's that's the problem with this aesthetic is that it's ultimately incoherent you know obviously there's good Canadian culture but in kind of the stock you know paint by the numbers Canadian culture the same incoherence is found throughout which is like it's jokey and meek and provincial and it's leaning into that but it's also entirely Mm self-serious and leaning into this really hard because this is what it means to be Canadian so it actually you know if it was just kind of bad novelty music that would be one thing but there's actually something a lot more insidious about it during Gian Gameshi's downfall, somebody leaked a video of him on tour where he was playing the piano and he was singing a song, All my fans make me sick. And he was saying to the camera, you know, I see my fans and I, I hate them so much. And they're you know, so beneath us. When I snub them, 
it's like stepping on a bug and like you don't even care and like i'm not even joking now i'm I'm sick and he was saying that and all my fans make me sick is actually his best song because it's the only one that sounds authentic (laughs) it's it sounds it sounds true to what he actually thinks so our american listeners and our listeners further afield will still have no idea what this band is and i think no one to my knowledge said it better than uh naomi klein who in 1992 wrote in The Varsity, our uh, journalistic alma mater at U of T, which I believe she was the editor of at the time. Uh, She wrote uh, something of a a takedown of Moxie Faroubis that I think better sums up uh, what they're about than anything else. She writes, For ethical reasons, I will begin by admitting that my motives for interviewing Moxie Faroubis were less than pure. Truth be told, it was more of a vendetta than an interview. I think my feelings are best explained in verse, Faroubis style, I don't like them. That's the key. I do not like them on the CBC. I do not like them on a stage. I do not like them on a newspaper page. I would not listen to them on the air. I would not marvel at their flowing hair. I would not, could not, don't you see? I do not like them, so just let me be. I do not like their faux politics. I've had enough of that moxie shtick. I do not like them at a pro-choice rally. I do not want to meet them in an alley. I do not like their PC ham. I hate them, hate them, Sam I am. Moxie Fruvis, in case you've been frozen in time, is the latest brand of nursery school all-Canadian rock. Healthy, squeaky clean, and painfully well-groomed, this semi-acapella band's cartoonish quality recalls an all-male Josie and the Pussycats. Why this level of hostility? For starters, there was a period this summer when I seemed unable to turn on the radio, see a band that I do like, or even walk down the street without being assaulted by the friendly sounds of Fruvis. The most disturbing occasions were a benefit for the Ontario Coalition of Abortion Clinics where Moxie upstaged Morgenthaler. The opening of Molson Place, which was billed as Holy Coal, but featured a surprise cameo by, you guessed it, Moxie Fruvis. And the Toronto Star picket line where the boys entertained the workers with lyrics even cheesier than the paper's life section. They were tailing me, I swear it. Although I had already heard Moxie Fervis headline rhyme several times on CBC Radio, I was still taken aback when, on one somber morning following the Toronto riot, I turned on CBC's Sunday morning only to hear the boys cooing a Dr. Seuss condemnation of police brutality. Where were you when? <laughs> Predisposition aside, I still believe that I went into the interview with an open heart and an objective mind. I even started with a joke to put the band at ease. The pre-interview press material included a Toronto Star article which opened with the warning that if there is one thing the Fruvis boys hate, it's the description that they are nylons meet bare-naked ladies. (laughs) So, you guys are like the nylons meet the bare-naked ladies, right? I said as I sat down with the four band members last July. My remark was met with stony stares and sulky glances. I (laughs) I then spent the next... Ten minutes backpedaling, trying to explain irony to a group which bills itself as political satirists. <laughs> Yikes, this was not going well. In the words of band member Mike Ford, Moxie takes satire mighty seriously. Our job as satirists is to discover the irony inherent in the issue, or with a public perception that is off. <laughs> well then, as the self-proclaimed satirist of these satirists, the irony in these political humorists is that they are neither effective politically nor particularly humorous. <laughs> You know, the thing about that Gameshi song, you know, all my fans make me sick, is who does he think his fans should be? Like, of course his fans are going to be people that him, you know, like a shitty hipster doesn't like. (laughs) Why does he think he deserves the fans he wants? He sings songs like, once I was the king of Spain. I think think, uh, think Naomi Klein would agree with you. Uh, She continues here. 
Their lyrics, which tackle issues ranging from cross-border shopping to harbor-front development to the Gulf War, Ugh. are hit you over the head were so sensitive political, while their presentation, which includes stupid hats, improv troupe antics, and mime, is goofy slapstick. They coat their pill with jam and thus make themselves easy for the likes of Peter Zosky to swallow. Fruvis, which writes to order for the CBC, is pure morning sigh. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I mean, the article kind of continues for a bit, but I think that's about the best summation, not only of Moxie Fruvis, but of, uh, you know, this broader kind of sensibility we're talking about, where the aesthetic is totally meek, but also the people performing it are extremely self-serious. You know, she found out that there was something they hated, which was to be called the Nylons Meet the Bare Naked Ladies. <laughs> so she ironically started the interview by saying that. And it just completely destroyed their <laughs> spirits. They're like, no, actually, we're very, we're a very serious band. Say the guys like that perform with silly hats and yeah. go ba da ba da ba Well, you should see my story reading, baby. You should hear the things that she says. She says, I'm not dead. I'd rather go to bed with Gabrielle Garcia Marquez. Got a love with William S. Burroughs. Leave on the light for bell hooks. I've been flirting with Pierre Burton Cause he's so smart in his books I like to go out dancing My baby loves a bunch of authors My heart's a broken bleeding Baby's just sitting there Doing some reading On the theme of Canada's identity There was an article in 2016 In The Guardian uh, before the election of Trump, believe it or not, I, I got the timeline wrong in my head. I assumed this would be exactly the sort of article that would be sold after Trump. But it was written by Stephen Marsh, who is kind of the Canada whisperer. He, mm -hmm. he explains the country to foreign mm -hmm. foreigners. Well, which is something I make fun of all the time, even though I'm literally paid to do that as well. I mean, I guess I agree with your politics more than I agree with Stephen Marsh's. Uh, <laughs> the headline was... Welcome to the new Toronto, the most fascinatingly boring city in the world. Mm -hmm. And the subheading is, From the endless scandals of Rob Ford to the endless hits of Drake, Stephen Marsh reveals the secret of his hometown's transformation into the 21st century's great post-industrial city. Uh, and this was an article that I saw lots of people sharing on Facebook and Twitter. I think, like, without actually having read it, but the link would say something like, Toronto is interesting because it's boring. Right. And that's the kind of thing that, like, you mm -hmm. see it and you kind of stroke your chin. And you're like, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's, such a, it's such an interestingly Manichaean quality to a statement like that, isn't there? You know, on the one hand, you got something kind of good, which is the, the quality of being an interesting, interesting. And then on the other hand, you know, something that's maybe a little less good, which is boring. And, you know, uh, I guess if you can read a little bit from the article, we can explore kind of the interesting... We can explore kind of the interesting uh, dualism and symbiosis of those two concepts. Toronto's dullness is what makes it exciting, a tricky point to grasp. Toronto's lack of ambition is why the financial collapse of 2008 never happened here. The strong regulations of its banks preventing their over-leverage meant they were insulated from the worst of global shocks. In London and New York, the worst stereotype of a banker is somebody who enjoys cocaine, claret, and vast megalomaniac schemes. In Toronto, a banker handles teachers' pension portfolios and spends weekends at the cottage. Uh! The worship of safety and security applies across all fields and industries. A reliable person is infinitely more valued than a brilliant one. The steady hand, quote-unquote, is the Toronto ideal, and Toronto's steadiness is why people flock here, and all the people flocking here are making it exciting. That's why Toronto is the most fascinating, totally boring city in the world. 
God, I hate that. I mean, the the thing about Canada having better financial regulations is true, but uh, the idea that we have some, like, does he really need to serve us this thing about how we have a nicer, you know, here a banker is your your neighbor next door. Stephen Marsh has written a number of articles kind of on the theme of Canada, what a concept. And, and also, like, in this in this world uh, of rising fascism, isn't it good that we have this one kind of liberal democracy that, that is still a shining beacon on the hill? Right, so we're living in a, in a sort of golden era. Although I guess we've kind of been through the, the, the peak of it, um, but it's, it's still very much going. This kind of golden era of Canadian exceptionalism. And the thing about this that I think is really annoying and also quintessentially Canadian is much of it is fueled by the way that Canada is perceived abroad, regardless of whether those perceptions are, are accurate or not. Mm. So an article like that is written by a Canadian with the goal of shaping kind of, uh, you know, uh, foreign perceptions of Canada. But uh, something like the inverse uh, exists, which is articles about Canada written by foreigners, by foreigners, I just mean Americans usually, which are nevertheless for consumption by Americans. They fill the same niche as when Michael Moore walks around Toronto and says, did you know Canadians don't lock their doors, Uh right? So an article like, uh, there's one by Peter Stevenson, January 16th, 2016. In the New York Times, it was called, with the rise of Justin Trudeau, is Canada suddenly hip? And then there's a picture of... um, Drake? Drake, believe it or not, is not in the picture. Uh, Justin Trudeau is. Ryan Gosling, Rachel McAdams, uh, Justin Bieber. When I think of cool... Uh, that's who I think of, Justin Bieber. And this piece is just pure. I mean, I you know, I won't even describe it. Let me just read the opening uh, paragraphs here. Last October at the Louis Vuitton Spring 2016 Women's Fashion Show on the outskirts of Paris, a male beauty in a white t-shirt, white and black bomber jacket and black pants waded into a blizzard of flash bulbs and cries of Xavier as he took his seat between Michelle Williams and Catherine Deneuve. Fashion editors tilted their heads. Who was this man? Why was he in the front row? A quick internet search would have told them that he was the 26-year-old filmmaker Xavier Dolan, a darling of the Cannes Film Festival and the star of a new advertising campaign for Louis Vuitton's Ombre collection, who would go on to direct Adele's Hello Video. His obscurity may have something to do with the fact that he is from Canada, the country that gave the world ice hockey, the snowblower, and the black beer. Well, it's probably just because he's like an art house filmmaker, too. It's not, it's not like they <laughs> tend to be world famous. But the notion that our neighbor to the north is a frozen cultural wasteland populated with hopelessly unstylish citizens is quickly becoming so outdated as to be almost offensive. Two weeks after the Louis Vuitton show... Justin Trudeau, the muscular, blue-eyed, social media savvy savvy son of former Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau, was swept into power, along with his liberal party, in (laughs) in a surprise win over Prime Minister Stephen Harper's conservative government. In the months since the election, Mr. Trudeau, 44, the six-foot-two self-described feminist who has been a television actor, snowboarding instructor, and amateur boxer, has assumed the role of world leader with a heart. In December, to the light of the Twitterati, he well, <laughs> the only audience that matters, oh he welcomed a plane load of Syrian refugees with the phrase, you're safe at home now, while helping them into warm coats. Vogue magazine wasted no time anointing Tr- Mr. Trudeau, the, the, new, the new young face of Canadian politics, noting that the new prime minister is dashing in his blue suit and jaunty brown shoes. 
Rupert Murdoch's New York Post could not resist running a 2006 photo of a lavish Mr. Trudeau in torn blue jeans and an unbuttoned black chemise with the headline, Hunky Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is the JFK Jr. of Canada. I guess the closest this has come to getting into like what, what Justin Trudeau's politics are is his welcoming of the refugees. Yeah, and he's a liberalish guy who yeah. calls himself a feminist. But what this is mostly about, which is so perfect, is it's just about... It's meta in the sense it's the New York Times on Canada... But it's furtherly meta in that it's, you know, it's all about just the buzz. It's like this, it's like even Rupert Murdoch couldn't resist posting a photo of this hunky prime minister. It's also interesting that like, you know, you know that saying that like you you need three things to make a trend. Right, right, (laughs) right. it's like, okay, so we have Justin Trudeau. We have Quebecois art house filmmaker Xavier Dolan. And who's their third guy going to be? Ryan Gosling? So it goes on to mention, you know, Drake obviously uh, comes in. Anything in there about Doug Ford? uh, It's all very... I like this paragraph. It's all very exciting. about eh? Charles McVetty? Is he in there? (laughs) (laughs) It's all very exciting, eh? But still, Canada, the land of hyper-politeness and constant apology, the home of maple syrup, poutine, the gentle sport of curling... And 10% of the world's forests, the country that Spy Magazine once said had cultural Epstein bareness. I don't know what that means. And then it goes on to quote uh, a bunch more people about how, you know, Canada's cool or whatever. And like a handful of the people that are mentioned are, are maybe actually kind of interesting or cool. Is this supposed to inspire Americans to like visit Canada or is it or is it supposed to just just be kind of like fodder? for? No, this is pure. This is the New York Times version of like just listicle. I mean, Trudeau also inspired just a deluge of kind of BuzzFeed listicles and things like Trudeau does jazz hands at the right. G20. Sorry, Ryan Gosling. Trudeau is our new Canadian boyfriend. Just stuff like that. Look, here's what I think. It has I think the same function as that. I think it's a hard business and, uh, you know, writers have to have a constant stream of pitches <laughs> that they're working on. So, you know, uh, uh, more power to the, the, the hardworking journalists who need to pay their rent in an unforgiving and inhumane industry. <laughs> But so, no, I don't think this kind of thing really has a political agenda at all. It's pure kind of cultural fodder, as is its kind of Canadian equivalent. It's just kind of a product to be consumed, and and it and its primary purpose is largely kind of vacuous feel goodism. And I think that's why that's the ecosystem in which this kind of stuff is flourishing now, uh, basically because of Donald Trump, right? I mean, it's it's not even so much about Canada. What's comforting about the abstract idea that there's this one country where where actually things are great and um, they're really not as great as people. Th- I mean, you know, to state the obvious, I mean, you and I both have health insurance. It's great. But then even in Canada, that was long ago kind of depoliticized. All the struggles that led to it, so much of, well, almost everything about this country that makes it, uh, every institution that makes it a more humane place to live than the United States in many ways came out of, you know, a political struggle, almost always undertaken by marginalized people. But we're very bad about kind of incorporating any narrative of struggle or kind of power, I guess, into our national story. Uh, It's always very much in the vein of that thing you just read earlier, where it's kind of like we prize, you know, the, the, you know, whatever was efficiency over... Or we, we prize competence over, you know, brilliance or whatever. The... the story we tell about ourselves is that we always kind of like asked politely and stumbled into something. Mm-hmm. You know, our independence wasn't a bloody fight like it was for the United States. Mm-hmm. It's it's something that, that uh, frankly, is still being declared. Right. And you go back, you know, look at, look at uh, so much of the Canadian art that's popular. You know, when people think of Canadian art, they picture... 
uh, it's either these romanticized portraits of kind of intercultural exchange, right, or dramas on the CBC that are about, you know, uh, Irish settlers in Newfoundland at the turn of the century having kind of hilarious interactions with the indigenous peoples of the area or something. It's either that or even worse version is kind of the art that's just these vast wildernesses that have nobody and nothing in them, mm-hmm. which, I mean, there's a lot of beautiful art in that vein, but I mean, it is a settler colonial society and that's something that we're very bad at kind of, again, we haven't really incorporated that, I, I think, particularly well into our kind of national narrative mm-hmm. because it's a narrative that's all about how we're we, we made multiculturalism a thing and now that's a reality so no further questioning is needed and we can largely limit ourselves to these liturgical celebra- celebrations of these rather boring aspects of our culture or basking in you know the limelight when americans pay attention to us maybe we've talked about it on the pod before but we should talk about it again here because it's so illustrative of this phenomenon. Uh, when the sketch of the Rob Ford sketch was on SNL, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if people don't remember, this was a the height of kind of the Rob Ford uh, crack video scandal. SNL did a sketch. The sketch featured a man who didn't really look like Rob Ford. He but and he said a a lot, which is not something Rob Ford ever said. Mm-hmm. He didn't sound anything like Rob Ford. None of the jokes, uh, and it's being a bit charitable to even call them that, even touched on anything that was remotely satirical or had anything to do with Rob Ford. So this was not a funny sketch. It didn't illuminate anything about Canada. It was for Americans. It was for Americans, but, you know, Canadians got something out of it too because they got to watch the sketch and think, hey, we really made the big time. We were on that. We were on the, the big boy show that they have down there in that bigger country. It wasn't just that. It was every night, every talk show host had mm-hmm. Rob Ford jokes in their monologue. And then the next day, you know, your Facebook feed would be full of, John Stewart did another <laughs> segment about, about Rob Ford. I remember going to a, a monk debate. Um, oh, wonderful. Don't, uh, yeah. <laughs> don't ask me why. Um, I think I, someone gave me someone free tickets or something. Back in, I don't know, it must have been 2011 or something. It was raining outside and you needed shelter and uh, it just turns out. <laughs> That's right. And it was like it was like some debate. I, I want to say it was like Paul Krugman debating Grover Norquist or something. <laughs> so back in, in a normier period of Luke Savage, you know, Paul Krugman at the beginning, just, you know, when he's kind of warming up the crowd, he just said something like, and you seem to have a very interesting mayor. And that's all he had to say. Yeah. This, this huge audience of people in downtown Toronto... Uh, there was this collective kind of chuckle and Paul Krugman had just won everyone over already uh-huh. because he like he mentioned this one thing. He didn't even have to say anything about it. It just the Nobel Prize winning guy that writes the New York Times just had to acknowledge Canada's existence. Do you remember when Conan O'Brien did a week of shows in Toronto? This was after Toronto had SARS and, you know, Toronto was trying to find what are some ways that we can get tourists back to Toronto after this terrible epidemic that happened. And they're like, well, let's let's pay Conan O'Brien to come and do a week of shows at the Winter Garden Theater for his TV show. And every night, you know, he would have a Canadian guest on like Stompin' Tom Connors or Jim Carrey or some other some other Canadian. And he would do a monologue of entirely Canadian jokes. A punchline would be something like, you know, a, a big a big hurricane is is coming into Ontario. Oh, no, that's actually Don Cherry. Wow. And the next day, all of the newspapers had daily front page coverage of the monologue jokes. The general tone of them was like, 
Boy, I bet the Midwestern viewers were sure confused about that Don Cherry joke. Oh, boy. The phenomenon can be manifest in in actually good Canadian cultural output as well. There's a moment that has always stuck with me and really irritates me in one of my, probably one of my favorite live albums ever, which is Neil Young Live at Massey Hall, which is an all acoustic set. And, uh... He has this monologue uh, before he before he plays a, a song on the piano. He's like, I wrote this in Vancouver, good old Vancouver. And everyone's kind of applauding just at the idea of Vancouver. And then he says, uh, been there twice, once at the beginning of the month and once a little later in the month. So Neil Young is very politely, jo- Neil Young, who is Canadian, obviously, is just kind of politely joking about, you know, he, he doesn't actually know Vancouver very well. Then when he starts playing the song, there's a line in it where he says, now I'm going back to Canada on a journey through the past. Mm-hmm. And when he says, I'm going back to Canada, all of Massey Hall just <laughs> applauds. And it's one of the loudest. It's, it's maybe, I think, the only applause that happens while he's actually playing. You know, and this is from the early 70s. But I think that illustrates so effectively this particular vulnerability in the Canadian identity, which is here's Neil Young you know, who is Canadian as a fantastic <laughs> musician and artist who has gone to the United States and been successful. And we're just applauding that he's still throwing us a bone by mentioning Canada in a song. We do that with Drake too all the time. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that's really sad. We don't we don't need to do that. There's lots of good Canadian art and literature and artists and, and ironic politics, Michael Moore podcasts. Yeah. And there's no reason to there's no reason to be kind of so meek about our own cultural output. Yeah, we have YTV's The Zone. We have PJ Katie's <laughs> Farm. We have Open Mic with Mike Bullard. <laughs> we have Just for Laughs Gags. <laughs> We have Putnam's Prairie Emporium. We have the Red Green Show. We have the Frantics. We have Smith and Smith's Comedy Hour. We have Bazaar, birthplace of Super Dave Osborne. We have MVP, The Secret Lives of Hockey Wives. We have beloved playwright Norm Foster. We have the Toik Oik. <laughs> nice to nice to take them down. <laughs> but seriously, for a small country, I think we've actually done pretty well and uh, where we're not doing well is in having this kind of reflexive insecurity not only hardwired into our national psyche but elevated the status of a virtue Uh, we're supposed to lean into the fact that we're kind of insecure and also to be very smug about how that actually makes us better in some way and i find that distinctly and uniquely annoying and also you know the facade kind of comes off the mask slips very quickly um a few years ago, I went on the CBC to do a very mild rant about this phenomenon that I've called maple washing, which is kind of a, related to this very thing we're talking about, right? Which is we have this particular kind of identity and this precludes self-criticism. Mm-hmm. I mean, I stand by the thesis of it. I have a feeling that if I was to go back and listen to it now, I might be slightly em- embarrassed by the tone of it, which was extremely mild, um, like many things you hear on the CBC, but just making this basic point. And, uh, you know, this Twitter account, uh, which calls itself Meanwhile in Canada, which is a kind of a, it's a very popular kind of meme, you know, it's pictures of canoes and beavers. Also for a while, I don't know if they're still doing this, but a lot of like Justin Trudeau propaganda kind of stuff. It had a meltdown and it was just like the NDP hack, uh, you know, hates this country, blah, blah, blah. Or that was the tone of it. They called you an NDP backroom boy. (laughs) Which, right, I right. mean, isn't exactly true because you literally ran for the NDP. I don't, I don't know if that's a I, backroom I, boy. I mean, I, I was an NDP backroom boy for maybe 12 weeks, uh-huh. you know. <laughs> but I think that kind of shows how, like, the meekness in the right context turn into hostility very quickly when you kind of push it. And when I have kind of tried to undertake 
this line of criticism, I mean, some people are very receptive to it, but in some quarters, it is really not well received. And I mean, even just criticism of Justin Trudeau, you know, a lot of the response you get is, how dare you complain about this when Donald Trump is the president of the United States? Right. And it's like, okay, you don't think it's a big deal that people in this country that don't have clean drinking water in like one of the richest countries in the world, you don't think it's a big deal that, uh, you know, we created Medicare uh, in the 60s, but people still pay exorbitant prices for, you know, drugs that they need to be healthy. Our healthcare system doesn't cover dental. It doesn't cover psychiatric care. Contrary to what Stephen Marsh says about our bankers, we have a rapacious financial elite just like anywhere else. And a, and a class of CEOs who makes more, you know, before lunchtime on January 2nd than the average person here earns in a year. We have all the same problems. And there's no good cause that's being served by ignoring that. And this genre, which kind of ranges from the kind of clownishly kind of clickbaity to the, you know, intensely cerebral writing The New Yorker, writing The New York Times or whatever about, you know, let's try to wrap our head around the just the, the brilliance of mm. the, you know, post-national multicultural mosaic Canadian model or whatever it is, um, you know, where these kind of elaborate theories are concocted to explain how Canada is this uniquely successful national experiment or whatever. I don't see any purpose that's being served by that that's a constructive one it's just about liturgically reproducing this flawed cultural image over and over and over again for our own consumption and i'd rather we not do that i don't like to be overly romantic about the past ever but the fact is you know in the 1950s and 60s and 70s in various ways you know we did actually kind of build things in this country there was at least an attempt to have kind of a narrative of progress or to kind of grasp what that actually might be and now, you know, our kind of, uh, you know, economic and political elite, their idea of a successful national project uh, that we need to undertake is just building a pipeline. Like, that's the limit of their vision. And guess what? They're not even capable of doing that. <laughs> not that they should. Now I'm going back to Canada on a journey through You know, revisiting Talking to Americans, what strikes me most is how far we've come. You know, back in the early 2000s, America didn't know anything about us. They only knew us for our national igloo, for our plan to rebuild Mount Rushmore in Saskatoon, for our uh, world leader, Jean Poutine. And now here we are, thanks to the efforts of people like yourself and Stephen Marsh, you know, the people who have made inroads for Canadians in the American media. Frankly, to thanks to the Michael and Us podcast, a global phenomenon. <laughs> People know Canada for what it truly is, the last bulwark of liberal democracy in the West. The one place where the Cheeto-in-Chief's orange powder has not yet contaminated, and that is Canada. So until next time, folks, keep your stick on the ice. Folks, you know Luke and I, we're unreachable, we're inaccessible, we never make ourselves available, there's no way to contact us. We've decided to change that. We're opening up the lines to answer your questions. Send your questions to Podcast at gmail.com for a special fan episode, which is coming next week exclusively on the Michael and Us Patreon. That's right, folks, you have to pay money to hear the answer to your question, but you don't have to pay money to send one. And as always, uh, we're really bad at asking for this, but if you do like the show, please give it a thumbs up or a five-star rating. Pokemon Go and smash that like button. 
leave a positive review, do whatever you can to uh, rig the algorithms in our favor. We'd sure appreciate it. Now watch this drive.